we started a series of sermons called Family Matters, uh, or sorry, Family Dynamics and the Household of Faith. And, uh, and so Paul, in, the, in his letter to the Ephesians, he said that we are no longer strangers and aliens when we're brought together under Christ, right? But we're fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. So we're a family, and, uh, and so today, as we continue this series, it's a good light topic for a May long weekend. We're going to talk about discipline in the church, because sometimes members of the family need correction, right? You know, the song that we sang, Prone to Wander? How, how many of you are like me, and as a child, you were prone to wander, and you found yourself always kind of getting in trouble? Was that, was that your experience, or are you the one who is always getting someone else into trouble? <laughs> Either way, the common denominator is trouble, right? We all need the grace of God because we all encounter trouble uh, from time to time, except for me because, you know, I, I rarely mess up or, you know, next, next to it's not an issue, right? So uh, anyway, church discipline. It's a <laughs> Thank you. Uh, church discipline is widely misunderstood and often very poorly done. I remember my first, not experience, but observation, I think, of church discipline when I was young. This was prior to, I don't know, I was a preteen, so elementary school. I remember there was this young couple in uh, the youth group. He was sort of on the fringe, I guess, of church exploring, but his girlfriend was a full part of the church, you know, a long time a part of the community, and uh, so she ended up uh, getting pregnant. They had a baby out of wedlock, and I remember uh, she was excommunicated by the elders of the church at that time, became very bitter, um, did not want to come back to church at all after that, and he was on the fringe. I don't even know if he was a, a believer or whatever, but it really put a bad taste in their mouths toward church. I don't know all the, deta- the details of it, Maybe it was handled well, maybe it's not, but I found the whole thing very sad and very strange, and it really bothered me because a few years later, when this little girl, was uh, their daughter, was old enough now to go to Sunday school, um, mom would bring her every week to church, drop her off at the door, the Sunday school teacher would meet uh, them, they would do the exchange, and then, and then the parents would go home, come back after church and collect their daughter, and uh, that's the way life carried on. And I thought, surely some kind of reconciliation could have been achieved in that situation where there could have been, maybe there was attempts, I don't know, I was young, but I was watching this and I thought, man, we need, uh, we need a fresh reminder on how to deal with, uh, with each other in the church when we experience trouble, when there is sin, not saying it didn't happen, but how do we deal with that and how do we bring people under discipline. We're going to talk about that, what that means today. And so there's a couple of extremes, really, when, when it comes to church discipline that I've observed. There's either people are uh, uh, church leadership or people in the church are very harsh and punishing. It's punitive. Or you completely ignore sin because, after all, love covers a multitude of sins. And so in love, people say, but, but they ignore the sin. They don't address it in love. And so there's these two extremes of ignoring or being too harsh, but discipline is necessary. It's absolutely necessary in order for us to live productive and joyful lives. It was funny, um, as I left uh, Lake Era, because I preached there this morning already and I came here, 
uh, there was a, a little boy being brought under the discipline of his father outside the church just after the service. <laughs> you are not being nice right now. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and the little boy is crying. He's in tears. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that's, uh, you know, it was, it, was a good, it was a good picture of a loving dad uh, trying to bring his son back into uh, into a way that he could relate well with the rest of the family and had followed me preaching the sermon, so that's good. This morning, five things are gonna be on the screen. We'll just go through them real quick and we'll talk about them one by one. What church discipline is, what it is not. Four reasons why we should discipline. Uh, principles and guidelines to follow, and then the results of discipline that is done well. And then at the end of that all, we're gonna share communion. And I think it's a good morning to do that because in all of this, we need to be pointed to the gospel. We need to be pointed to the grace and the reason why Jesus shed his blood, which is because of our sin. And so we'll talk about that a little bit too. But let's stand for the reading of the word. We're gonna anchor uh, most of our time in Matthew 18. The primary text, but there's, I want to mention a few other uh, texts as well today. Matthew 18, 15 to 25, 20. If your brother sins or sister sins against you, go and tell him or her to his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother or your sister but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every, th- every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen to them, or if he refuses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. A little side note, uh, the person who wrote this was a tax collector. Okay, let's keep that in mind. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The reading of God's word. Please have a seat. So, in order to understand this, uh, this text... Context is always very important. So let's back up to verse one. I'm just gonna quickly explain what's going on. The disciples had just had a discussion. In fact, parallel gospels say that they argued about who was the greatest. Who is the greatest among us in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus was bothered by this because the root of this was pride. And the root of so much sin is pride, right? And so... And so Jesus um, finds a little child, takes the child by the hand or maybe picks the child up and brings this child into the middle of the circle and starts talking about humility. The fact that our actions have an impact on others, especially the innocent, the children, which can cause them to sin. And in fact, Jesus says, woe to the person through whom the temptation to sin comes The person, woe to the person through whom uh, uh, others are caused to sin, especially the innocent. So that's the context, all right? So Jesus says, guys, you need to get over yourselves really quick because people are watching. Ever noticed how children watch and hear everything? You don't realize they do this until later and all of a sudden they're talking about it. 
and they'll talk about it at the strangest times, right? <laughs> you got company over. Did you know what my daddy did? <laughs> All right. So our actions have an impact on others, especially the little ones, the innocent people. So Jesus says, guys, knock it off. Bring that pride under control because you're going to cause some problems in the church. He's preparing them for leadership, right? He's preparing them for uh, body life, family life in the church. So when, when, when we understand that context, the passage on discipline makes a lot of sense because there's a lot at stake. And sandwiched between this, this conversation Jesus had with his disciples and his instruction on how to you know, uh, bring someone under church discipline, there's this little parable called the parable of the lost sheep. It's explained more by Luke, but Matthew references it here. And the parable has to do with one of these little ones who wanders. They leave the family uh, because uh, they've wandered away from the truth, right? And it's, it's one of those little ones that were impacted by somebody who influenced them because of their pride. And Jesus said, a good shepherd in that situation will leave the 99 healthy ones away who don't need any <laughs> to be brought back, and he'll do all he can to win that one back. So th this is how we're going to frame our conversation, all right, in, in terms of church discipline. It makes, it, it makes a difference. When we understand that, um, <clears throat> we understand that all have sinned and there is none righteous, not one. And it is not good that, it, that, if, that I lead someone astray, especially someone who is innocent. So we need to do all we can to keep each other in check. In fact, church discipline is really one of the most loving things we can do if we do it really well. <laughs> so that's the goal. Let's talk about what church discipline is. I'm going to give you a quick definition and then we're going to sort of work from there. Church discipline, the way I understand it from scripture, is the loving, gentle uh, process of confronting and correcting a brother or sister in the Lord who is caught in a sin with the hope of gaining and restoring them back to full fellowship with God with the individual against whom they have sinned, if at all possible, and with the church family. I say a Christian intentionally because discipline is a family matter. Paul said, scripture says, we are not to judge those. Now, the word judge is to discern what's going on in a person's life. There's a difference between judging and being judgmental, okay? We are supposed to judge those in the church People say all the time, oh, don't judge me, don't judge me. That's actually wrong. It's not biblical. But Jesus said when we do judge, that means we discern what's happening in a person's life and it doesn't lie, if it doesn't line up with the word of God, Jesus said you gotta do something about it. Paul said the same thing, but Jesus said you have to be careful to take the big log out of your own eye before you pull that little speck out of your brother's eye or your sister's eye, right? So it's a family matter. We are never to judge people of the world, ever. Okay, are we clear on that? Ever. There is sin going on in the world all around us and in the church. We deal with it in-house, but there's a lot of sin and horrific things going on in the world, and we are not to judge that. That is God's job. We're to love people and share the good news with them. 
and hope that they will come to faith and repentance in Christ and begin the Holy Spirit would begin that transforming work in their life. All right? So that's what church discipline is. Uh, what it is not, it is not punitive. So when we talk about in-house, there is an element of punishment in church discipline, but the goal, we're gonna talk about this from Hebrews, is to give someone ed an education. So <laughs> I don't know if it was ever said about you or of somebody that you know, who may be continually messed up and you say, man, they sure learn things the hard way. <laughs> yeah, there's some people that repeatedly learn things the hard way, but the fact is they're learning. To bring someone under discipline is to bring training into their life, which means they're getting an education. So we have to, we have to uh, an education sometimes is costly. But we have to view it that way as an education. But church discipline, church discipline in, is not punitive in terms of being destructive in a person's life. We should never do that. In 2 Thessalonians 3, yeah, the, uh, the passage is coming up here. This is uh, written of a person who is under, was undergoing church discipline. And Paul said, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. How often do we shoot people who are wounded? That's horrible. We ought to give a warning shot, but never point it at someone. And so uh, we warn people, but we don't regard anyone as an enemy, but as a brother. They're part of the family. Uh, church discipline is not getting rid of uncomfortable people. I don't like that person. I really don't like their lifestyle or what they're doing, so maybe we should just deal with it and get rid of them. Problem solved, not. So uh, Jesus engaged uh, uncomfortable situations all the time. So even though he talked about treating someone as a Gentile or as a tax collector, how did Jesus treat those people? He met with them. He ate with them. He went out of his way to talk to them. He confronted people in their sin. He, he called them to repentance, but he did not avoid them, ignore them, or push them away. So we need to think about that too. Church discipline is not about being the church cop. You know, some churches have somebody in, in, the, in them that has a, a badge, and it has the FBI written on it, and it's the Fellowship Bureau of Investigation, right? <clears throat> it's terrible. We're not, we're not to go around looking for problems. Uh, church discipline is not exposing someone to public shame, but it's also not avoiding so again, the two extremes, we can get out the microscope and be legalistic, or we can overlook everything and say grace trumps. It's a license to sin. And Paul said, absolutely not. Okay, so let's talk about four reasons to engage in church discipline. Matthew 18, the first one, is the one we read, and probably the one that will impact us the most. Probably. And so, and so this is why it becomes the main text today. When there is personal offense or sin between two Christians, this is what Jesus said we should do. You do a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So if someone's offended you or sinned against you, please don't call me. Like for real, don't do it. <laughs> you, you go sort it out. Uh, I didn't grow up in a pastor's home. In fact, I think I'm the only pastor in history in my entire family, so I have no background to, to draw on in this regard. But I have a good friend. 
uh, from college. We're still friends for today, for, you know, today from way back. And his dad was a pastor, and he told me one time how his dad handles the situation. People would come in all the time to the pastor's office, eh, so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. So then uh, Henry, this guy's name was, he says, so what's the person's name? Okay. Do you have their phone number? Uh, yeah. He'd pick up the phone, put his finger, okay, give it to me. And, and then the person's like, no, 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 no. Well, you're coming to talk to me about it, so let's involve them right now. No, 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 no. It's okay. We don't need to do this. Well, then get out, go out the door and go have the conversation. And if you're not willing to do that, you, you, regardless, you need to forgive that person, but then you may need to let it go if you don't have the guts to actually go have that talk. So you go talk to them, and if there's denial, well, I don't know what you're talking about whatever, not a big deal, and you have witnesses, then you bring those people along, you know, another person or one more. That's what Jesus said, two or three, go talk to that person again. Now, don't just go grab two or three people that have heard your story only. You need to grab two or three people that actually know what happened. They need to be witnesses to the situation because you can't establish a charge on hearsay. It doesn't work. So a side note, I want to say this to all of us. Make sure you have witnesses when there's a situation where sin can easily happen, primarily in the areas of money, finances, and sex. Make sure you cover yourself, all right? This is why, as a church staff, we have rules for ourselves. So amongst ourselves and with congregants, I am never, and I wouldn't anyway, but it's written, I'm glad it is in a policy, we are never to be alone with a member of the opposite gender. Not in an office, not in a car, not in a home, never. And so we always have someone accompany us if we're going on a car ride to a meeting or a conference or that kind of a thing. You always have to have somebody there who knows what's going on and can hold you accountable and can say, no, 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 that's not what happened. The conversation didn't go that way. Same with money. So I heard of a situation one time in the church where there was a couple who were, um, had a real heart for another couple in the church who were going through financial difficulty. And so they invited them over and, and said, look, we want to help you. And I think the arrangement was, part of it was a gift, but it was a sizable amount of money which they were taking from their own savings for retirement. And they said, look, we want to help you with this. But the agreement is, this much we expect to be repaid once you get back in your feet. So it was very generous. You know, they didn't have the ability to go to the bank. So here is this couple in the church who said, we're going to help you. So they agreed. A few years later, the struggling couple find themselves in a good position, so the other couple who loaned the money figured, well, they're in a position now to start repaying this. So they invited them over again, had another conversation. And literally, the other couple said, what are you talking about? Like, what money? Right? There was nothing. Like, then they couldn't do a thing about it. Nobody witnessed the conversation. There was nothing on paper. Be prudent. If you make an arrangement with someone... <laughs> Make sure you document it. Make sure you're doing your homework because that also will avoid a very bad situation. All right? Um, so 
They won't listen to you. But you do have witnesses. So then you go to the church. And I want to say this. Depending on the context, church uh, uh, should be, you would go to those who represent uh, the church. The elders. Uh, Central has elders. You saw four who are nominated. That's why it's so important that we nominate and we approve as a congregation those who are uh, ruling, in a sense, over us. Because they make decisions sometimes about very tricky matters, and they need to be people who are of good reputation and all the rest. The list there is in T- Titus and Timothy, and there's a, a very extensive process that Central uses to uh, select elders. By the time you see their pictures on the screen, they have gone through months of vetting. Months. A lot of conversations have been had. And so <clears throat> that's why we say if there's any reason why you know that they shouldn't serve as an elder, you better speak up. So you tell it to the church. Uh, those who need to know from there will be handled by the elders, sometimes in a small church, sometimes in a big one. The whole congregation needs to know because it, if done in a very appropriate way, it really minimizes gossip and, uh, and it, it just... Uh, puts the truth on the situation rather than people running wild with their imagination. And if that doesn't work, Jesus said, you treat the person as a Gentile or a tax collector. Uh, you simply don't involve them in the same you know, way that you would in the church normally in spiritual practices. They are an outsider, but that does not mean that you ignore them or leave them alone. I believe what Jesus said, when you treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector, they have no spiritual participation with you. But you also have to uh, interact with them on some level on their turf in order to gain them back, right? To win them back. But how many times do we do this backwards, so backwards? You know, someone sins, we make an assumption, we avoid them, we talk to others about them, and then it gets back to them, and by then, you have a, a prairie grass fire in August with a really strong wind. Good luck getting back from that one. So destructive. So you start really narrow, really narrow, and the circle very carefully goes bigger as it needs to, all right? Don't start here and start talking to everybody about the situation, start here. So the next three that I'm gonna talk about follow a different process, but some principles still apply, which we're gonna get to in a minute. This is not sin against an individual between people in the church, but against the the church as a whole. So the second one is when a Christian's sin is publicly known. I was gonna read 1 Corinthians 5, but uh, I'll just summarize. Read it on your own, it's an amazing chapter. 1 Corinthians 5, there's someone in the church who's involved in a grievous sexual sin. Um, he is, uh, he is uh, having sex with his father's wife. That's messed up. And even, even people in the community were saying, like, this is sick. Like, this is even something that we wouldn't do. So it's known in the community. It's affecting the church. And Paul said, why are you guys not dealing with this? I I don't even know the guy, and I've already passed judgment on him, and this is what you need to do. So if you're aware of a situation that is affecting the whole body, it's not a sin against you personally, but it's affecting the reputation of the church. It's affecting people in the church. You go straight to the elders, and the elders need to deal with that. And if there is not repentance, uh, then there needs to be... uh, 
Uh, we'll talk about the process later. If there isn't repentance, the person must be removed. It's like, it's like cancer. If you, don't, if you don't deal with it soon, it'll spread very quickly. And sometimes you've already uh, lost the battle. But you need to try. Number three, when a Christian is publicly spreading heresy. Now, <clears throat> Paul wrote this before Facebook and Twitter existed. And Instagram and Lord knows what other social media platforms are out there that I have no interest in. Nonetheless, people say all manner of things these days. And some of it's so doctrinally messed up and incorrect, it's not even funny. Now, you can can try in a situation like that to talk to somebody one-on-one and say, hey, like what you're saying is not right. Um, <clears throat> don't call it misinformation or disinformation because then you'll just sound like a politician. <laughs> call it, just call it, look, man, you're in error doctrinally. This is not what the Bible teaches. So in, in, John wrote this to the church. He said, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have Christ. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching faithfulness to the gospel. Do not receive him into your house or give him anything for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And and Paul wrote to Titus, he said, he, that's a church elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder has to rebuke. If you know somebody who is, who is not being biblically faithful, and elders are in a different category, but a Christian, go see the elders about it. Go talk to them. And they are to rebuke people who are not teaching the word of God correctly. All right, the last one. When a church elder is caught in a sin, moral failure of some kind, or in doctrinal error. So Timothy, Paul wrote this to Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And James said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I don't like these verses very much. They make me feel a little uncomfortable because what am I doing up here? If I fall into moral failure, or if I'm teaching something that you go, hmm, this isn't right. And like the Bereans who are noble who were noble and they tested everything that they heard against the word of God and you hear me or anyone else in our church teaching something that doesn't line up, you actually have a license at that point with a couple of other witnesses to go directly to the elders. So you gotta deal with this. You don't need to go to me. Go to the elders. Now if you want to, but you see, when it gets to that level, quite often spiritual abuse in the, in the church, you're afraid actually to go talk to somebody because it'll just perpetuate the bad behavior by leadership. 
And this is happening more and more. I mean, it always has, but we see it all the time in churches. And it is actually not very safe or wise to go directly to a person because they're going to do a number of things. They're going to either get angry or defensive or they'll play the victim card and continue or they'll justify their behavior. And so you just ignore all of that and you go straight to the elders, let them deal with their own. And, and the, uh, the church says, or scripture says, if they don't repent, they don't, repentance is a good word. It means just to turn around and do it different. But they persist in sin, then the rebuke is in front of everybody. Central has done this with elders. And that's why elders go into that position with fear and trembling, because there are those who have messed up morally, and the church, the entire church, has been told about it. But at the same time, they hold that elder close and they commit to walking with them very closely for a whole year. We hope one day, brother, that you're going to be restored to this. That's what I love about our church. It's a a beautiful thing. But the rebuke has to be public because what we do is public and we have public trust. And so you need to deal with it at a public level. Okay, let's talk about a few guidelines. I've already mentioned a whole bunch, but let's go through these uh, quickly. Maybe what time is it? Okay, here we go. Yeah, whatever, whatever. I love that response, Rick. Thank you. I'll buy you a lunch this week. No, I'm just kidding. First principle, love is foundational. Don't ever forget it. I want to read three scriptures. My son do not, and daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And God uses the church to exercise discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. I mean, what parent would just let their kid have free reign? You can't do that. It's chaotic in the family. 1 Corinthians 4 What do you wish? Now, this is just before um, Paul said of the person caught in this horrible sexual immorality, you have to to remove him from the church because this is terrible. Just before that, he said, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Some translations say a whip. Or with love and in a spirit of gentleness. That was always Paul's approach, even though he was very firm. 2 Corinthians 2. Now we're into the second letter to the same church. This person had been removed now Paul said this, now if, any, if anyone has caused pain, he's talking about the person who is the sinner, he caused the church pain, a lot of it. He has not caused it to me, but it, in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or may, he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I was reading this morning in John chapter 20 where Jesus said, you know, if you forgive someone their sins, they're forgiven. But if you withhold your forgiveness, it is withheld. It's a a very serious teaching, but we have a role to play in loving someone and bringing uh, about forgiveness in their lives. So I remember another situation I'm a bit older now, 20, newly married. Marcy and I are 20 and 18 years old. Went off to college. Um, 
I did a couple of years as a single student, and Marcy did uh, some training as well. And then we got married, moved back to school. So now we're in, in college, finishing our last two years, and I, we heard of a situation back home in, the, in Marcy's home church, which became my home church as well, yeah, of a, an, another young couple, you know, 16 and, 16 and 15 years old, who um, got pregnant. And, uh, you know, word spreads pretty quick, so we hear of this all at a distance, right? So we wrote a letter, and this is in the days before email, all right? So dating myself a little bit here. We wrote a letter, and we said, hey, heard about your situation. Is it true? So you want to establish that first, right? And then, and then we said, look, um, what, what you did is, is sinful, um, but if you've sought the forgiveness if you've repented and sought the forgiveness of the Lord in this, and you want to reestablish your relationship with him and other people, we said, we forgive you too. And we sent the letter, and we just prayed for them. Well, a few weeks later, we get a, a return letter, and it was the most beautiful thing. Um, they were so appreciative that we would reach out to them in their public shame, and it was accompanied by uh, a wedding invitation. And so uh, we made the trip back from college just for their wedding. And, uh, you know, they decided to get married uh, before her baby was born. So she was um, six, seven months pregnant, you know, and it's a bit of an awkward situation. But it was beautiful. And we were so honored to be part of that. And they went on as a young couple to start a life group they became leaders in the church. They actually, one of them was employed by the church for a while. And we still have a connection with them and they're still part of the church. And it's, it was a beautiful thing. You're just open, but you're firm. You express your love and your forgiveness if they seek the forgiveness of the Lord and turn from their ways. Uh, secondly, uh, principle gentleness is essential. I've already talked about this. Uh, if anyone is caught in a transgression, Paul said, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We can think that we're so much better, right? When someone is caught in a sin, and we, that's where harshness and pride and legalism comes in, where we think this will never happen to me. The minute you think that way, you are in trouble. You need to go into a situation saying, this can be me. I can be that person that I'm trying to help right now. It gives you a completely different perspective and attitude in the way you deal with someone. Third, participation is needed. Other than when someone offends you one-on-one -on -one or sins against you, you go talk to them and try to sort it out. Um, in church discipline is always it involves participation of others. Galatians said, brothers, if, and we'll repeat this again, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them, spirit of gentleness, keep watching yourself, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. That means the person who is the, the sinner is bearing a heavy burden. We need to recognize that. They're bearing an incredibly heavy burden, and we are called to carry that with them, sometimes for them, so that they can get out underneath that load and begin to live lighter again with God's forgiveness and his grace. 
And I want to say this too about bearing someone else's burden in the area of participation. If you are not willing to roll up your sleeves to bring about a solution and you're just content to talk about it, number one, stop talking. And number two, don't get involved. <laughs> okay? If you're going to talk about it, that means you must get involved. And if you get involved, you must be willing to work hard to bring about restoration. So Jesus said it's a spiritual exercise and it requires, sorry, collective authority because it's tough work, because uh, there needs to be accountability in the group that is trying to restore someone, otherwise it's going to be harsh. And you... Um, and so that you also aren't tempted. That's why Jesus said, you know what, bring a couple of people along. And that's where, where there's two or three gathered and there's agreement. That's where spiritual authority comes from. Okay, number four, firmness is necessary. I've listed a bunch of scriptures. I won't read them all. But, but my, uh, Jesus even said, look, you need to treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector. It doesn't mean you stop... Um, um, trying to be involved in their lives or meeting them on their turf, but you don't involve them as well in the spiritual exercises. And in Corinthians, he goes further. He says, if a person is unrepentant, you need to remove them from the church. And in two situations, Corinthians and in 1 Timothy 1, Paul said, literally, you hand them over to Satan. That seems pretty harsh. But what does the Bible say? The whole world is under the control of the evil one. In other words, if, if that person is unrepentant and they want to continue to follow the ways of the world, you hand them over to that, to that way. And when, they've, and when they're done playing in that sandbox, which is not going to be so nice, then you can bring them back. But if they want to stay there and experience the full consequences of Satan's domain, then that's what they've chosen. And you need to put them there. They, <laughs> We got to be firm. Like, that's what scripture says we're supposed to do. Um, Paul said, certain times you should have nothing to do with people. In, to Titus, he said, uh, those who cause division in the church, he said, they must be silenced and not allowed to cause division in the church. And if they can't do that, you need to rebuke them sharply. And if you've repeated, if you've repeated your warning, Twice after that, Paul said to a person who's divisive, have nothing to do with them. It's bad for the church. It's bad for our witness. And finally, number five, restoration is always the goal. If anyone is caught in a sin, you should restore him. You know what the word restore means? I love this in the original language. The word restore means to put a dislocated limb back into place. Oh, painful. But when a person has sinned, they're rendered ineffective. Their power is gone spiritually, mentally, often physically. They're living under the guilt and the weight of their sin. It's like a dislocated limb. You can't use it. And so that's why firmness is required because I've never done it. I've never had it done to me, but I understand that putting a limb back in place requires a little bit of effort. <laughs> I just cringe thinking about it. But until that painful process happens, it doesn't do anyone any good. Number five, the results of doing discipline well. Love is experience. That's why love is foundational. And I use the word experience because 
Love needs to be experienced by the one who's doing the restoring and the one who has sinned. Here's the thing that I've learned about people who have, who are, who have been caught in sin. And, and I'm not at all talking about myself. Okay, that was a joke. I have found that people who mess up are messed up. And I say that about myself because I've had a lot of wounding in my formative years. And so when someone is caught in a sin, it's no good in the church, for example, let's say, you know, just to kick them off the ministry team. They're involved in a, you know, they have an addictive behavior or something like that and say, you're done. Unless you're willing to address what that behavior is. And that requires a little bit of hard work. It requires some digging. Probably requires process, if they can handle it, of an intense freedom session, but maybe some counseling or therapy by a good Christian counselor. Because when you start peeling back the layers of someone who has a messed up life, you'll find that they've been sinned against pretty significantly. And they need to experience God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. They need to be able to extend forgiveness to other people who have hurt them. And when you deal with all of that kind of stuff, the Holy Spirit will just slowly begin to transform their behavior and their joy and their spiritual power will be, uh, they'll be made alive again. I'll talk about that in a little bit because it's been put back in place. Um, one of the, another result, so love is experienced. A person has to feel it to know that they're loved. Secondly, gossip and collateral damage is minimized. Man, a tremendous amount of time and energy and destruction can be mitigated by keeping it small and to escalate is just unnecessary and it's no good. It also keeps sin from spreading. If we can cut it out early, it will not work. It's like Paul said, sin is like yeast that works its way through the whole batch of dough. You've got to get rid of it before the whole batch is affected. And James says, souls are literally saved. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. It's beautiful. It's what Jesus came to do for us. And find, uh, third, there, uh, change can occur. Um, Paul wrote in Hebrews that discipline is not pleasant, it's painful, but in the end, if we're trained by it, if we're educated by it, um, it will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We, we go on to become effective again. Our spiritual power comes back. Read the Psalms, read about David, King David, who messed up royally. And he talked about his, his emotional, physical, and spiritual energy just being gone. But when he was restored, he, he literally cried to the Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And when we deal with it, that comes back. Your quality of life will increase. It will yield the fruit of righteousness. Your family is better off. The unbelieving community is attracted. They see it well done. God is glorified and Satan's stronghold is broken. And the last result is there is peace, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. And that is what Christ came to bring. 
If you have, if you're celebrating communion with, with us today, take, take this out. The Bible says that, that God, that Jesus allowed himself to take the punishment of God, to bear the wrath of God, so that we might have peace. He did that for us. And we are to extend that to one another. That we point people to Jesus. We point them to the blood that he shed and we, said, we say to them, this is for your sin. So that you might have peace. With God, you might have peace in your own soul and your own heart and your own mind and in your body and that you might have peace with others in your family, in the church family. And it is all because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so in Hebrews 10, this is just before the writer of Hebrews talks about this whole discipline thing. Um, the writer says that, that Jesus, who shed his blood for all of these things, paid the ultimate price. And when we continue in willful, deliberate, continual sin, it is actually like taking the blood of Christ and walking on it. It's like trampling on it. Trampling on his grace. And so that's why to take communion is a serious thing. So the verse will be on the screen. It's 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what this does and why we do it regularly, one of the, one of the reasons why we celebrate communion regularly it's to remember what Jesus did for us and the results that it brings in our lives and to check ourselves that we don't treat this as unholy. It actually mitigates the need for church discipline. If we can check our own hearts and say, hey, there's something not right in my own soul, I'm gonna change that right now as I do business with God. There's no need to come under church discipline. That's a beautiful thing. So why don't we take a moment before we partake to examine ourselves. We're just gonna do this in quietness. No music, no nothing, just quiet. So these words um, that Paul wrote to the church, a church that was riddled with sin and conflict and division. He said, check yourself. And then he said, for I received from the Lord why I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a thin layer on top that, <laughs> just don't pull the whole thing back or you'll spill the juice. <laughs> Peel that back and as you do so, I'm gonna give thanks. Lord, we, I give you thanks for your body that was broken. It was upon that tree, upon the cross, that you bore in your body all of the things that affect us. You bore the wrath of God. You took our punishment so that we don't have to, and we give you thanks and praise for that. Help us, Lord, not to take this lightly. But thankfully, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Father, we thank you for this cup. We acknowledge the high price, the highest price that you paid for our sin, for my sin. And Lord, help us not to take this lightly. Help us not to trample this under our feet and, and to use grace as a license to, to continue in sin. Help us, Lord, in this act uh, of self-examination and participation to say no to the things that you died for and to live your way and to deal with others in the way that you did in all love and in all gentleness and all respect. Lord, where we have erred in dealing with others in their sin, we repent of that. We ask of your forgiveness. And we ask that you would help us to do it better, to do it your way. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what it's meant in my life and in so many others. Protect us, deliver us from the evil one, Lord, as we continue in ministry and try to be your witnesses to this lost community who needs the grace and the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus. So we say thank you for this cup, which represents what you did for us at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake.